Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Before we get into today's topic, a quick mention of today's sponsor. This episode is brought to our by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Head on over to their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about the instructor coverage they offer in pricing. Use the discount code FTP10, FTP10, for 10% off for switching your insurance over to them. I use their insurance and think you will too after you check them out. This episode is also brought to you by Barrel Block. Listen, if you are tuning into this podcast, I assume you've heard of Barrel Block. It's the industry standard for safe, dry fire practice and classroom demos with a real firearm. Barrel Block prevents negligent discharges and eliminates training scars. I love using Barrel Block with students because it's safe and puts everyone at ease. When installed, and remember, no tools or disassembly required to use it, everyone in the room or on the firing line can see that the firearm is safe and inert. Plus, given the price, I can't imagine a firearm instructor who wouldn't have one in their classroom gear and one at home for personal dry fire use. Pick yours up today and enjoy a special offer for listeners of this podcast at blocksafety.com and use code INSTRUCTOR20 for a 20% off discount. That's B-L-O-K safety.com. Today we will be discussing, are you delivering what your student needs and want with Ken Hackathorn? Ken has served as an Army Special Forces small arms instructor, gunsight instructor, and NRA police firearms instructor. He is currently an FBI certified firearm instructor, certified deputy sheriff with Washington County Sheriff's Office in Ohio, and an SRT member and trainer. Ken has trained U.S. Military Special Operation Forces, Marine Fast and SOTG units, and is a contract small arms trainer to the FBI SWAT and HRT. Ken has provided training to federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies, have been active in small arms training for the past 25 years. He has written firearms-related articles for guns and ammo, combat handguns, soldier of fortune, and currently American handgunner, and contributed to at least six other gun or shooting journals. Ken was also a founding member of the IPSC and IDPA. Welcome, Ken. How are things out in Idaho for you? Pretty good. Sunshine today, 50 degrees, and most of the snow is gone at my elevation. That sounds like great weather compared to what we're having here in Ohio right now with 50 degrees and sprinkles and cloudy. Just uh, I'm envious of you being out there in Idaho. Well, I I don't miss the High River Valley. Sorry, but that... (laughs) On again, off again, weather pattern back there is uh, not much to brag about. Nah, it's not. Well, hey, let's jump into our topic at hand today. We've got a bunch of instructors that are interested in hearing your input. Are we delivering what the students really want when they come to class? and uh, Or are we delivering what they really need when they come to class? And I want to hear your perspectives on that, Ken. Well, sadly, I think it's changed over the years. Like I said, I've been doing this for almost 40, over 40 years. And I've seen a demographic change. Many students now want uh, entertained. I call it entertainment. They don't want really to learn the fundamentals that they need. And remember, it's all about fundamentals. Uh, my segment and anybody's in the firearms training business, your primary job is to teach them combat marksmanship. And along the way, you can give them some other clues. Um, but, you know, I always tell people, 
you're preparing for the things in life that they can control. There's going to be a whole bunch of things that's going to happen they have no control over. But, for example, you can say, well, they're not going to be able to control when the attack comes or the threat comes. That can be qualified in saying, look, if you teach your students, for example, do not go where you don't belong. By that I mean, don't go to bad areas. Uh, don't go out to the carry out for a gallon of milk at midnight. If you do things like that, you're likely to put yourself in an environment that you might face a threat. And candidly, if you can control that, don't, I always tell people, don't do stupid shit. And that's reality when it comes down. Don't practice it and don't, you know, don't do it in real life. So, um, but for the most part, everybody today wants to be a John Wick. That's the model that student thinks that they've got to get to be good. And we both know that's pretty far from Hollywood. Yeah. Not, not anywhere near reality. So, um, my theory is what I always tell students at the end of class, you got what you needed. You may not got what you wanted, but you got what you needed as far as a trainer provides people with material. So they, they go and practice it. They can get, more proficient and become more capable to protect themselves and their family. Can't make anybody good in two days. If it could, I'd charge them a lot more money. But you can give them the material if they practice it. Um, they'll, in all likelihood, become much more proficient. And I noticed, by the way, it hasn't changed much in 40 years. Some people don't train. Some people don't practice. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you knew the facts, somewhere between only 10 to 20% of your students actually go home and routinely practice the stuff you've shown them. Um, I've seen that myself. Yeah. So I, I guess if you reach 10 to 20% of them and they go out and get better and more comfortable, remember the key word I tell everybody, everybody says, well, what are you in the business? Of? What do you do? And I tell people my goal and that of any farm instructor is provide your student with confidence. And that means their confidence to utilize a weapon in a combat marksmanship role that they Feel that they can, you know, they can persevere. They can come out on top. Like I say, a lot of other factors involved. But if you're not teaching techniques that provides them with the confidence they need, you're taking your money and you're not giving them what they really need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they might want to go along and shoot a thousand rounds in a weekend, but in reality, that just shooting a thousand rounds doesn't make them any better. Oh, what they really yeah. need is understanding that combat marksman. Yeah, and as a matter of fact. Uh, the volume rounds quite often has nothing to do with skill. I'm amazed at the people that judge schools and it's somewhat changed, but you can remember prior to the Obama era when ammunition was in short supply, a lot of students judged the school based upon the amount of rounds they fired. My experience is most people, if they're really functioning where they're concentrating on every shot they fire, uh, they're good for only about three, 350 rounds a day. And then they start going downhill. Um, I tell people, a shooting class, a combat marksmanship class is not physically tiring, it's mentally tiring. Because if you're concentrating on those fundamentals, man, it burns you down. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the, and it's the mentality that you need to have to avoid the situation or to survive the situation. Yeah. And I think the, the key thing as a farm instructor, besides giving them the mechanics as far as the fundamentals of marksmanship, you need to be able to explain to the students how those apply. I'll give you an example. Um, if you carry your weapon on your, say, your right hand, or you carry your gun on your right hip, three o'clock, four o'clock position, and you also carry your wallet 
in your right hip pocket. If you're accosted, let's say in a robbery or an attempt to, you know, relieve you of your, of your possessions, if the process of reaching for your wallet exposes your firearm, you've compromised what you're about. So simple thing is carry the gun on the right side, carry your wallet on the left side. And so you should integrate information like that with the techniques and the fundamentals, you know, the do's and don'ts and why. And I fear a lot of people don't quite grasp that. The other one I see now, and I'm sure, Rob, you're aware of it, is this obsession now with carrying inside the waistband in the front. The, uh, as a matter of okay. fact, the gun pointed at your junk technique. Mm -hmm. Very popular today. Uh, and don't get me wrong, it probably got some valid applications, but it's not really that valid for a lot of people. If you spend much time seated, um, it's not the most comfortable way to present a weapon. And the other thing from a trainer standpoint that really is scary is watching people reholster. And if you probably noted in the most classes today, if you look down the line, there's a lot of guys that shall we say have a little overhang. And, and I'm certainly, you know, at this point in life, um, not the flat, flat belly stallion I once was. So I'm the, guilty of that too, Ken. Yeah. So you get to the point where you watch the students reinsert the pistol into the holster. And a lot of them end up sticking the muzzle in their stomach in order to get it started down into the holster. Well, from a trainer standpoint and from a liability standpoint, you got to say, ouch. Um, mm -hmm. Why would you let a student endanger themselves in class simply because they are obsessed with this is how I carry my gun? And my answer to them is, cool. Uh, move your gun around to your strong side, three o'clock, four o'clock, and this class is over with and you leave, you can move it back so it's pointed at your junk. That's your business. I just don't want you shooting yourself in my class. Um, you know, there's the old, a lot of people don't get it, but you know, the old adage about carrying your gun in that midline 12 o'clock position is if you use that technique, every gun you carry is a decocker. Think about that for a minute. Yeah. You got to kind of balance out what is practical. And I tell people, lots of stuff we do in a training environment, we have to do for safety. And we have to do it for a wide range of students. You know, I, I get the thing all the time where people will show up and they told or they've advertised when they try to get in a class that they have a training background or they've taken classes or they're ready for, you know, the material. Well, as you've seen, that, should we say, a lot of people falsify that. I see people showing up for classes that should have a basic, you know, gun handling marksmanship class. They're not ready for, for combat marksmanship. Uh, and that affects the conduct of the class because if you've got, say, 15 people and 14 of them are there because they belong there and you got one guy's a newbie, doesn't even, barely knows how to load and, and uh, holster a gun, you're kind of behind the power curve. You can't spend time trying to help him and ignore everybody else um, because the other people are there to get what they paid for. So the structure of the classes today in many ways, in my observation, is getting harder. You get more and more people taken in a class from a what is theoretically more advanced class that probably shouldn't. And their answer is, well, I think I'm ready because I took a CCW class. That's their background. Well, you and I both know in most of those things, depending on the state you're in, often the CCW class is mediocre at best. 
it's basic safety. That's all it comes down to. It's not advanced gun handling or shooting or anything along those lines. And most CCW classes that I've seen don't even include holster work to get you to understand how to properly holster without pointing the gun at yourself, obviously, and in your and the students around you. Hallelujah. Um, yeah, it's uh it's amazing what you see in classes once you get around and then you realize when it comes to students at the same time, uh, what they have. And I think from an instructor standpoint, the big part is one, making sure your class is safety. I mean, safety's always got to be a primary thought no matter what you do. And if you have one student that is, uh, not up to speed with the other ones, you've got to teach at that level so that you don't create an unsafe uh, situation overall. Uh, uh, question for you, Ken, and I think, um, you know, a lot, a lot of people be interested in seeing what, what you have to say about this is what do you think from an instructor standpoint, we've talked about teaching the students and things like that, but what kind of things could us, could an instructor take to get them ready to be able to teach to these multiple le- levels or to identify the multiple levels of students that he might be reaching in, in one of his classes? Well, it's much more difficult than it used to be. I mean, I, kind of learned by osmosis. I mean, I had some a pretty good background, but I tell people, I'm learning constantly. Um, I got to be honest with you, Rob, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I taught was wrong. And one of the key things is learning, hey, does that material or does that subject, is it valid? And if it's not, you need to change. And part of that is if you're an up-and-coming instructor today is you need to uh, uh, give yourself a little space once in a while where you can take a class from another instructor. And you know, we spoke here earlier about one of our mutual friends, old, old buddy Dave Spalding. I mean, he's one of the top guys in the business. Going to a class like that, you were going to learn. I remember I tell people, and you know, I used to, I would go someplace or watch and I'd see another instructor teaching something that I came up with. And I used to initially get like, oh, you know, they stole my stuff. Well, the reality, they didn't steal it. They paid for it. I sell a product and that information, if it's valid, other structures are going to use it. And kind of that's smart. If you get a chance, I tell most people, depending on your schedule, lifestyle and, and what you can afford, it's a good thing if you can to take a class once or twice a year, whenever it's possible from an instructor that you have vetted. One of the big mistakes is a lot of people don't research what the instructor that they're going to take. Uh, what his background is, what's his message? You know, is he teaching a competition or oriented shooting program? Is he teaching a valid proven pr- program or is he teaching something that's uh, designed to, shall we say, to capture the marketplace? And we see a lot of that today where people are trying to create niches of training um, so that they're different than everybody else. So I think smart move is, uh, research-wise is don't be afraid to reach out and take a class from another instructor. Um, remember, I tell people, you don't have to buy into everything I say. It's kind of like going to a smorgasbord. You know, you take a little taste of everything. The stuff you like, you can load your plate up with. Stuff you don't, just disregard and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's real important, too, because uh, back to your initial point, things change over time. And us as instructors have got to realize that. And the only way we learn is by going to see other instructors, by going along and getting schooled on different topics. And then we can go along and make our students better. If we were teaching, if today we were teaching the same 
pistol craft that was being taught back in the seventies, people would be thinking that we were insane because it's changed that much. Same yeah. thing. If we were teaching the same thing that was being taught 10 years ago, people would be thinking, you know, wait a minute, why aren't you teaching with modern firearms with modern methods? And that's where whatever we're teaching today, I'm positive in the next five, 10 years, things are going to change. We're going to be looking back and saying, wow, that wasn't really the smart way of doing things. You know, there'll be different carry styles. There'll be different products, different firearms that will all come out in that time frame. And the only way we as instructors can be a, a benefit to our students is by staying current with all that. Yeah. And, you know, a case in point is the red dot sighted pistols now. First off, I'm convinced they're the wave of the future. I'm convinced. I'm not convinced they're ready yet. I mean, any product, anything in life, you want to look at the pluses and the minuses. And we all know what the pluses are. If you're shooting at distance or you've got impaired vision, there's a lot to be said for current red dot sights. The negatives are really long list. And if you carry a gun every day, that net list of negatives you'd immediately, to me, crosses it off of any validity. Now, there are guys that are highly dedicated, the guys that shoot a lot, who have become very proficient with them. But the average cop, the average soldier, the every CCW owner will never practice to become proficient with enough that they have any advantage. So, but I think that's the direction we're going. Now, one thing I'll tell you, Rob, I'm old enough and have been this long enough that I'm one of those guys, you talk about back in the 70s, I was one of the Cooper disciples, you know. Mm -hmm. that back then, we got our information from gun magazine. The internet didn't exist. Number two, we formulated a lot of our, our impressions of what shootings were about and gun fights based upon police reports, after action reports of, of crime scene incidences. And we know that one thing cops, I tell you, one thing cops do better than everybody else is recruited report writers. We make sure that we write reports so we don't get jammed up. In other words, you want to make sure we describe what we did that follows departmental policy. Um, the surveillance videos that's come to be the norm in the last two or three decades. I mean, every stop and rob, every police cruiser. I mean, we now visually see what really happens in shootings and gunfights. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different than what we were told it was, you know, 25 years ago. And I think you're right. Smart move is you look at that stuff and say, well, maybe we need to readdress some of the training techniques. For example, I was one of the guys back in the day that quickly realized that when the bullets start flying, people start moving. And if you're not teaching shooting on the move, you're not teaching people to fight in the real world. Um, and I can remember when I first did it, a lot of people were very upset with me because they said, well, what you're doing is unsafe. Well, it may be unsafe, but it's the way it is in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so shooting on the move should be part of every program that uh, involves teaching people to use uh, sidearms for self-defense. I can't remember the gentleman's name who uh, taught the course I was in, but I took a course one time and he went along and said he did. The course isn't teach you how to shoot. It's teach you to be a gunfighter. And his whole uh, premise behind it was exactly what you were saying to where as soon as you get into a fight, everything goes out the window and you've got to rely upon your instincts and knowing how to properly apply those instincts, shoot and move, dive for cover, do whatever you need to do to survive because the point of everything is to go along and survive at the end of the day. Yeah. And I, I give you a case in point, Rob. Uh, back in the day, I can remember everybody had black sights on their pistols, black front sight, black rear sight, and that was considered to be what it took. Those were basically based upon a target. 
shooting mentality. What we've learned over the, the span of time, if you will, in the real world, most people don't look at the sights. Hopefully you see them. And that's a critical difference. When somebody's trying to kill you, it's real easy to look at the, the threat, the individual that's trying to kill you. But if you can bring your gun to eye level and you got a front sight that somehow captures your attention, whether it's a gold bead or a white dot or an orange fiber optic, whatever, if you see that as part of your alignment and you execute proper trigger control, and that, by the way, is the hugest. I mean, if you said to me in a nutshell, what's the most important thing? In combat marksmanship, I'll tell you real simple, it's trigger control. The ability to press that trigger straight to the rear. Remember, we're born with a natural instinct to align the sight with the target. The brain says now and you jerk the trigger. And that haunts everybody. And one of the reasons, if you look at the statistics of hits in real life shootings and gunfights, they're pretty low. Exactly. Less than 25%, I believe. Yeah, so that's because of the now syndrome, as I call it. And if you can learn to keep that gun aligned with the target and press the trigger without disturbing alignment, you're probably going to shoot an accurate, effective shot. But again, we've, we're now in a world that God help us. Everybody's obsessed with speed. You always hear speed and accuracy should be the other way around because I don't care. Listen, an accurate fast shot is a good thing, but if you drop, the ball on accuracy. I don't care how fast you are. It's not going to go well for you. And I always tell people, if you ever get in a shooting or particularly a gunfight, nobody's going to have to yell, you know, nobody's going to go shoot faster. That's never going to be a problem. But what they probably should be yelling is shoot more carefully because you're shooting at a target. It's the size of a grapefruit, whether it's a sternum or here, you're shooting a grapefruit sized target. You know what? For most people, that's, that's a, requires a degree of accuracy. And again, uh, a lot of the mindset of speed is a direct result of competition shooting, which permeates our society today. And I, I get to guys all the time, you know, how many times have you been to some place where the guy walks off the line and his buddies all say, what was your time? I mean, nobody ever says, what were your hits like? Mm -hmm. And the line is, if you can't shoot effectively, by that I mean hit a grapefruit, at whatever distance you consider to be a combat effective range. You can't do that. I don't care how fast you shoot, probably not going to solve the problem. And one of the drills that uh, I saw that you uh, invented and I, I really like is the wizard drill. And that I think, you know, fi shooting cold five shots at anywhere from five yards to uh, 10 yards, uh, that really pushes you to go along and make sure that you can do those shots when you need to and how you need to do it. Sure. And, and kind of the basis of that is, you know, you and I both know we see lots of people, you and I know people that carry, say, a 9mm or a 10mm or a 45 or 387 or whatever, but what they actually have in their pocket when they leave the house is a 380. And I always tell people, if you're going to fire that thing in defense of your life or your family, what shot can you make with one round at three or five yards that will, you can guarantee that shot will take the fight out of the, your, your threat? I'll be honest with you. With the 380, it's a headshot or any caliber. You can shoot somebody in the torso, and the, as long as the blood pressure has got blood flow to the brain, they can remain active. Um, but I'll tell you, if you put a bullet through the cranium, um, people often survive that. But you know what? They're usually not very good combatants after that. So 
that drill is based on whatever you carry. If you can deliver the performance that that drill requires, which is you can drop two points and pass it, uh, you'll probably be okay. And as you can imagine, uh, I always tell people if you're carrying a 380 or a 32 or something, these are basically, when you do that, your basic saying is, I'm counting on never needing it. You know, those little pocket rockets are great as long as you never need them. Mm-hmm. And you know, they, they're, they get pretty minimal. Yeah. And I like, I like the way the drill is you, you shoot it cold. I mean, yep. just boom, go up and do it. And you can see exactly how you would react in a violent encounter. Uh, you know, that's something you don't normally see a lot of people. Yeah. We get, go to training. We, you know, shoot, shoot 10 rounds, chain magazine, shoot another 10 rounds and, you know, look at the target and score it. But how many times do you just get up there and shoot it cold? I mean, just cold. And like you said, with your carry pistol, whatever you're shooting, we're not bringing the race gun with us or anything else like that to, you know, to get a better timing. We're doing it strictly to emulate what would be happening during a violent encounter. You know, uh, I'm a firm believer. I'm a product of the old U.S. Army training system where you explain what you want the student to do. You do it twice. Um, then you give them the reason for it. Why are we learning this skill? You got to give it plan. And if you don't know why you're, if, if instructor, if somebody says, well, why I, do I need to know this? And he can't give you an answer. That's a kind of a clue that maybe you picked the wrong guy. You must be able to articulate why this skill is critical and why it's going to be applied. And then I'm a firm believer. Yeah, instructors should then demonstrate it in front of the students. And people say, well, the trouble with that is what if you screw it up? What happens to your credibility? Well, you know what? They find out you're human just like everybody else. But if you can stand up in front of the students and demonstrate that skill cold and perform it properly, Dan will say, okay, now I'm going to have you do it. Basically, the students are going to do it. Now, by the way, periodically, I'll screw it up. You know, I'll blow a shot or, you know, it won't go the way I would like for it to go. And you and I say, Tom, well, screwed it up. I'm going to do it again. And then, you know, bail yourself out. And then I always use a line that uh, Jeff Gonzalez came up with. And it's a great one is, you know, when you throw a shot, you know, out of the A zone or out of the circle or out of the five, whatever. I always use Jeff's line, which is, you know, even a monkey falls out of a tree once in a while. <laughs> that kind of you know that kind of breaks up the 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 stress of that situation and say okay let me do it again see if I can't get it right. That way the students realize you know he's human he can screw up too. And um, but I still again I the sad thing about the days of the internet we have people and you see it all the time demonstrating shooting drills or shooting problems and to be honest with you they'll shoot dozens until they get one that's good and that's the one you see on you know on a forum or on an internet site you go wait a minute the only one that matters is the first one mm-hmm. we're totally bogus definitely as we as instructors we need to go along and teach our students on how to you know build themselves into a good shooter uh, because like you said we've got two days uh, potentially on a, on a weekend class to where we need to go along and instill what the knowledge in them, but that doesn't mean in two days we can, they can build the skills. They need to know how to how to repeat the skills over and over again. And and as you said, even even you know some days you fail, and but the point is pick yourself back up and fix what didn't work and make yourself a better shooter. One of the things you know I learned from from Jeff Cooper, Colonel Cooper, uh, in the early days. Jeff was pretty slick as as an instructor. If you were going to perform a drill, say at ten yards. Jeff would walk in front of the line. So he'd be in front of him a little bit. He might only be at seven yards. 
and he would demonstrate the drill. And he did very well, by the way. Everybody likes to, you know, I've had people that are very negative about Cooper. Trust me, Jeff Cooper in a day was a good shot. By today's standards, he may not be as good as some of the hot shots are now, but Jeff was no one I'd ever want shooting at me. And But Jeff would be, if you're doing an El Presidente, there's a big difference between doing it at 10 yards and 7 yards. You're going to look better at, at, at 7 yards. So Jeff's kind of, that little trick is the students don't, understand that they're, they're not conscious that two or three yards closer to the target can have a dramatic effect on your ability to perform better. But as an instructor, you know, you want to make sure that when you do it, you don't screw it up. And, uh, I, boy, I'm amazed. And you've seen this, Rob, these guys come up before they do a drill, they want to press check the gun two or three times and they want to kick gravel around and get your feet planted. And they want to do all this stupid stuff they do in matches. You never get to do that. You never, you're never going to check your sight picture. You know, you don't check to see if your gun's loaded. If, if you put it in a holster loaded, it doesn't unload itself. You know, you, you don't get all these preparations. You better be able to stand up. Here's what I want you to do. Okay, stand by, watch this, and perform it. Don't go through all this stupid stuff where you look like you're, you know, uh, a maestro trying to get tuned, get tuned up before he plays the piano. You know, do it cold, walk up and do it, and shoot it like it's supposed to be done. And don't make excuses. If you We're screw up. combat marksman, marksmanship and, and those, those things have a place when you're in competition, getting ready. But if you're doing combat marksmanship, like you said, get up there and shoot it cold as is, you should know the status of your firearm, all those types of things before you ever get there. Well, and you've seen this, look at how many guys based upon their, I see it all the time on their competition background. First thing they do when they finish shooting is unload their gun and put it back in a holster. Mm-hmm they can do the next drill they get loaded back up before they can do it man i still people don't do that in front of the students it makes you look like an idiot you know i run a hot range and i make it perfect clear everybody you know if you go to fill with your gun you go do it in a, in a safe manner where you're not pointing or threatening anybody but otherwise the only time your gun comes out of the holster is when you're on the line and you keep it hot i tell people nobody's going to tell tell you to keep your gun reloaded the first day, I'll probably say at the end of each drill or string of fire, you know, top them up, heat them up, you know, whatever, reload and holster. Second day, I quit telling them. And they, a lot of students will get caught. In other words, they'll pull the gun out. They've only got a couple of vultures and an empty gun and go, look, did you learn a lesson here? You know, always, if given an opportunity, put a fully loaded gun back in your holster. Mm -hmm. Yep. And those are things that emulate, you know, car, uh, a combat. You know, nobody's going to go along and say timeout, you know, unload or timeout, top off those types of things. You put it back, you know, in the condition you want it back in your holster and you got to deal with it that way when you pull it out the next time. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things I always love about the law enforcement community, it seems like when you go to the range, you've probably seen this. One of the first things that always happens, a qualification, whatever. Um, first order, you always get unload, unload and clear your weapon. And I thought, I always thought that was amazing that they let you carry a gun 24 seven on the job. But when you go to the range, first thing they want everybody to do is unload and clear your weapon. I always, and I've asked people, the range officers, why do you do that? Well, but for safety, I go, really? Hmm. But they're walking around the streets every day, riding around on the roads and with a loaded gun and they're not safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good insight there, Ken. Well, thanks, Ken, for your insight on what instructors should know about their students and everything. If people wanted to find more information about you or classes uh, that are coming up, uh, can they find out that information? No, you don't do many anymore. 
Yeah, not a lot, but if I used to tell people, check out Aztec, A-Z-T-E-C, AztecTraining.com. And what classes I do, I'm already doing one this year. I tend to do with Aztec. Um, and so check them out. And I, I say, I'm never going to retire if I can help it, but I'm doing very little training anymore. Like I say a lot of good guys have come along the way, some really talented people out there. And I'm sure a lot of those guys are probably a lot better than I am. So uh, they're the they're the new guard. So they're the ones you need to check out. Well, you're definitely a legend, uh, Ken, in the, in the industry. So I appreciate your time today uh, talking to us and giving your insight to the instructors that are listening to the podcast. Well, that about wraps things up today, everybody. Uh, if you enjoyed today's show, we have a few important requests to make. First, visit our sponsor's uh, webpage, Farm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com and check out the instructor insurance. Uh, being a responsible instructor means having insurance. Also remember to use the discount code FTP10 to get 10% off when you subscribe to a new policy. Tell our instructors about our podcast. Um, you heard Ken talk about need to, to go along and get training. Uh, recommend this to those instructors you know that don't get annual training. Maybe they can, once they hear from one of the legends, they will uh, maybe take it upon themselves to better themselves and produce a better result for their students. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever product you use to listen to podcasts with. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you have any input, questions, or feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can email us at ftp at concealedcarry.com or leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Until next time, stay safe.